Hello, and welcome back to the Caliphs, the rise and fall of Arab power. My name is Zaid Wahab, and today we are going to set the stage for the coming Abbasid revolution by focusing on the province where it first caught traction, Khurasan. You probably remember how messy it was there from the episode we already dedicated to the East, and it won't surprise you to hear that the same divisions which complicated things for the Ummah really catalyzed the revolution's success. We'll try to make sense of the disarray by sticking with the perspective of one uniquely well-placed witness, a leader whose life and death mirror these historical developments quite faithfully. Episode 39, Masr bin Sayyar. Let me start by saying that if the name Nasr bin Sayyar is familiar to you, even vaguely, then I am pretty proud of the both of us. I hadn't heard of the man before getting into the classical sources, which is striking considering the role he played during the early days of the Abbasid revolution. But even more, it is a testament to how complicated that incipient stage in Khurasan really was. I've given a lot of thought to how we should cover this revolution, and ultimately I decided that we should take the time to learn all we can about how the movement got going. Otherwise, it will seem like it came out of nowhere, and snowballed into an avalanche before the sources could get a word in. It's a complicated story, and like last time, there are a lot of new names involved, few of whom will survive the episode. Still, if we just rush through to get to the guys and events which will be influential going forward, we'll miss how all these divisions we've been tracking actually led to the downfall of the Umayyad dynasty. So trust me, it's worth it. Now, if you don't remember who Nasr bin Sayyar was, then no worries. We're going to cover his whole life in detail anyway. The important bits about the Abbasid revolution won't start until late in Hisham's reign, and Nasr already had an impressive record of service in the Ummah by then. Before we begin with his career, though, I want to point out that facts about his birthplace and tribal affiliation are sparse and contested. He is often referred to as a Khurasani Arab, but it's unclear if what's meant is that he was born in the East or he had just spent his whole life there. Similarly, he's often counted on the Adnani side of the tribal feud, but it seems like that's largely because his wife was from a Adnani tribe and because the Qahtanis really hated him. Nasr had a prominent tribal name, his full name was Nasr ibn Sayyar al-Layfi al-Kinani, and Kinana was a Meccan tribe with a storied legacy, but despite this, his family line was unexceptional. So again, despite his famous name, Nasr was not a prominent Meccan superstar. The first time Al-Tabari mentions Nasr is way back in 705, the first year of the reign of Walid bin Abdul Malik. Those were the Ummah's golden days as far as military conquest in the east was concerned, and Al-Hajjaj's loyalist Qutayba was growing the Caliphate's borders by leaps and bounds across Khurasan. The 40-year-old Nasr was only a minor commander at the time, but he did so well fighting for Qutayba's brother that he was gifted the village of Tinjana as a reward. Of course, there was plenty of glory to go around when the undefeated Qutayba was in charge. Nasr's story is far from unique 
and he doesn't come up again in our sources until Hisham was about to take charge of the caliphate almost two decades later in 724. Now a lot had happened between Walid and Hisham's reigns, however, little of it any good for the Ummah's stability. The short and turbulent reigns of Sulaiman, Omar II, and Yazid II really exacerbated the tribal feud, especially in the east, where the Muhallabs violently seized power from Al-Hajjaj's men in a Qahtani power grab under Sulaiman, then were dispossessed and hunted down during Yazid II's reign with equal brutality. On top of this tribal dimension, the caliphs aggravated the Mawadi by reversing Omar II's enlightened reforms, which encouraged the local nobility in the east to ally themselves to the Chinese vassals, the Turkish, and rebel against Arab authority themselves. All these upheavals tore apart the east. Whenever some Arab VIP with a few hundred loyalists found himself on the wrong side of official authority, joining up with one of the many available renegade troops became an attractive proposition. After all, Khurasan was a faraway hinterland of the caliphate, and with enough men not only was it easy to go rogue, but between the Karajites, Mawali, Abbasids, and tribal coalitions, there were plenty of options to choose from. You probably don't remember this detail, but when Hisham replaced the pro-Adnani Yazid II, the Qahtanis and Khurasan were so bitter at how the new caliph wasn't sufficiently biased towards them that they refused to obey orders to muster for a battle against the Turkish. That's when Al-Tabari next mentions Nasr, as one of the commanders who coerced these renegades back into compliance. So just the second time he is mentioned, Nasr is put solidly in the Adnani camp. I am not entirely convinced. Even coupled with the fact that his wife was from a prominent Adnani clan, I still think that Nasr didn't consider himself a partisan of either side. Although what's clear is that the Qahtanis would remain opposed to him from then on. What came after forcing the armies to march to meet their enemies was the catastrophic Day of Thirst, where the Arabs were decisively routed by the Turkish, an unambiguous defeat in which Nasr somehow distinguished himself and saved thousands of the Ummah's troops by leading them safely out of hostile territory. Hisham's first governor of Khurasan was Asad al-Qasri. Nasr was part of Asad's campaign against Qutal, today's Tajikistan, and here too he distinguished himself in battle as a capable commander. Asad's tenure in Khurasan pushed him closer to the Qahtani side of the feud, and so Nasr was not rewarded for any of his accomplishments, and was instead punished for them. Asad's removal from power came after the caliph heard about how he had publicly disciplined and humiliated several Adnani figures, Nasr bin Sayyar among them. Here too, our sources insist that Nasr must have been a Adnani partisan, but I remain unconvinced. To me, it just seems like a time and place of hyper-partisanship, where Nasr was punished simply for not siding with the Qahtanis. This may seem like a small detail I'm insisting on, so let me flesh out my larger point. It wasn't that things in the East were chaotic because everyone was partisan, it's that the tribal feud had gotten so out of hand that literally everyone was involved now with non-partisans being targeted by both sides. But let's set this inter-tribal lens aside for a second and return to the Turkish threat. After Hisham removed Asad from power in the east, he had a handful of governors who met with defeat at the hands of the ascendant Chinese vassals. Masad isn't mentioned too often during this period. He comes up every now and again as a commander, but mostly he is said to have governed different towns and cities the most important of which were Samarkand and Belch. 
under Ashras, he quelled an insurrection demanding a return to Omar II's pro-Mawadi policies, an uprising which was a precursor to Hadith's long rebellion along the same lines. The next governor was Junaid, who apparently had a thing against Nasr and kept him at arm's length. Despite this, Nasr seems to have once again distinguished himself against all odds, even during Junaid's disastrous battle of the ravine. Alright, so far Nasr was this awesome Arab commander, adept at military discipline and keeping foreign foes at bay. But something big changed in the east following the two calamities of the Day of Thirst and the Battle of the Ravine. The Arab armies had been practically wiped out, and the veterans of these defeats were so disillusioned with the caliphate that a rebellion led by the upstart Hadith ibn Suraj rapidly grew into something unstoppable. Masr was governor of Belch when Harith's rebellion came knocking in 734 and laid a new kind of challenge at his door. Instead of resorting to a military solution, Masr tried to negotiate with the rebels. Ultimately, Harith's cause proved so popular that Masr had to take what few loyal men he could count on and abandon the city to the rebels. But I want to pause for a second and discuss Nasr's choice here. It speaks volumes that he decided to engage with Hadith's men and listen to their complaints, rather than look to Damascus for instruction. He must have understood how unique their circumstances were, and how far removed and ineffective official policy was from addressing their concerns. His bloodless handover of Balkh stood out to me as it showed an engaged approach, something which had sadly been missing from the East for a very long time. A couple short years later, Asad was back in charge of Khurasan and Nasr was once more on the governor's naughty list. As always, he did not let this stop him from giving the army his all, and it seems like Nasr can only ever shine when there's a war going on. He set himself apart in the climactic battle in Tukharistan when Asad defeated the forces of the Turkish and Harith combined. While Harith lived to rebuild his support, Ikhagan was killed by his deputy Kursun, shortly after this defeat. Asad also died before too long. And finally, after more than 30 years of command across Khurasan, Nasr bin Sayyar was chosen as the province's latest governor. While there's still about a decade before our episode's crescendo with the start of the Abbasid revolution, this is an important juncture and we should pause to explain its significance. There are two things that need to be pointed out about Nasr's promotion to governor. The first is that Hisham's governor of Iraq, the mega Adnani, Yusuf al-Thaqafi, was lobbying hard for one of his own loyalists to be chosen instead of the 70-something-year-old Nasr. The second is that when Hisham picked Nasr, he was warned by his advisors that Nasr had no significant tribal backing. Together, these two points back my claim that Nasr wasn't some partisan hack but an independent political actor. He was opposed to anything which undermined Muslim unity, but was clear-eyed about the Caliphate's significant flaws and shortcomings. He had a solid grasp of the plight of the Mawadi, and having witnessed the transformations of Omar II's policies and their reversals, he understood their pitfalls as well. It is hardly surprising that such a perceptive, thoughtful, and principled man would prove to be an ideal governor for Khurasan. Nasr invaded Transoxiana twice in his first year in charge, and on his third go-around he defeated and killed Kursul, ending the Turkish threat for good. 
He defeated Harith in battle, but was compelled to let him go after some local Sogdians threatened to rebel. The next year he expanded his reforms and treated with most of the local princes, both of which gave him far more control over the province than any of his predecessors had managed. To top it off, throughout these first few years of his tenure, he also successfully staved off repeated attempts by the governor of Iraq to have him replaced. Okay, we're about to get started with the complicated bits. This is sort of our episode's midpoint, as we've just wrapped up all we had briefly mentioned about Khorasan before, and we're about to delve into the part where the tangle of conflicts allow a revolution to successfully take root. Here's the thing. The Abbasid agents of the Da'wah will step into an ongoing three-way battle for control in Khorasan, so keep that in mind as we add layer after complicating layer. In 743, Hisham passed away, and Walid II ascended the throne. One of the first things Nasr had to deal with was a rebellion in Khorasan by Yahya, son of the Hashemite Zayd bin Ali. Zayd's rebellion was thwarted in Kufa by the brutal governor of Iraq, Yusuf al-Thaqafi, a year earlier. And despite the fact that Nasr managed to keep the peace just fine, Yusuf continued to push for his removal from power. Now that his nephew was caliph, it is not surprising that Yusuf was a lot more confident in his push against Nasr, and he ordered the governor of Khurasan to put together as much wealth from the province as he could, and to personally bring it all to him in Iraq. Nasr couldn't very well go against the caliph's uncle, so instead he stalled for as long as he could, and the telling in Al-Tabari depicts these as some of Nasr's tensest months so far. The situation in the caliphate's heartlands of Syria was so chaotic that it must have been difficult to be sure of anything. We are told that when a loyalist of Nasr's kin finally made it to Rai to tell Nasr about Yazid III's successful coup and how Yusuf was now on the run, Nasr celebrated for a day, then grew suspicious and had the man imprisoned and kept under close watch lest he turn out to be a spy. It took nine days for others to corroborate his story, and Nasr was so jubilant and relieved that he gave the man a generous chunk of the wealth he had seized from Khorasan and distributed the rest among his men and the general population. While the main headline was great news for Nasr, the consequences of all this Umayyad turbulence were a lot thornier and more difficult to contend with. Pay attention now, because things are about to get a lot more complicated. Yazid's ascension presented Nasr with three dangerous new developments. The first was that Yazid now wanted to install his own man in the province. At first it was Mansur al-Kalbi's brother, and then it was Mansur himself. Since things are complex enough, I will skip any details I can afford to, so forget about how Nasr warded off the caliph's attempts, he just did. While that kept him in power, thwarting the Kalbis both alienated Nasr from the Syrian troops that were nominally under his control, and made any further reinforcements from the caliphate itself unlikely. This meant that Nasr was now largely on his own, so it was a good thing that he was popular in Khurasan and could hold on to power without needing to be propped up by Damascus. The second complication stemmed from Yazid III's attempts at being a reformer. The new caliph wrote to Harith ibn Suraj and gave the renegade a full pardon. He denounced the ways of the evil Walid II whom he had usurped and heralded a new age of pious Umayyad leadership. Of course, the details of this are as contested as anything else in Yazid's short and badly documented reign, but sure enough, Harith emerged from hiding 
and rode around the province triumphantly growing his base of support by claiming to have been the reason behind this reversal of Umayyad policy. It's not clear if Hadith was that big a deal since his defeat by Nasr a year earlier, but he was definitely a force to be reckoned with following this pardon. The third and final complication had been brewing for a while, and we'll have to look back to Hisham's reign to see its origins. Hisham's most successful governor in Khurasan was Asad, who is often called a solidly Qahtani partisan. While this is debatable during his first stint as governor, by his second we have much more definite proof of his pro-Qahtani position, most importantly, his right-hand man, Judaya al-Kirmani. Al-Kirmani wasn't just any old partisan, he was practically the leader of the Qahtani alliance in Khurasan. As Assad's deputy, many in the east expected the caliph to pick al-Kirmani to succeed him as governor of Khurasan, and the Qahtanis were utterly dismayed when Nasr was chosen instead. Al-Kirmani and his loyalists predictably tore away from the army following Nasr's promotion, but they didn't pose a real threat to the new governor until Yazid III. The new caliph's failure at extending his influence to Khurasan horrified them, and they took it upon themselves to wrest power from Nasr. So to recap, by late 744, we already had three factions vying for control of Khurasan. Al-Kirmani was clearly Nasr's biggest concern at first, and he considered multiple ways of dealing with the threat he posed, from establishing family ties to trying to turn his own loyalists against him. Ultimately, he did manage to imprison him, but his supporters broke him out within the month. Harith ibn Suraj arrived in Maru just after Al-Kirmani's great escape, and so managed to capitalize on all the chaos. This guy capitalized on everything. He even claimed that the mysterious Da'wah was really calling for his ascension to power, despite the fact that he wasn't from the Prophet's clan. Remember, that's all anyone knew about the Da'wah at this point, that it was a movement which sought to restore the Caliphate by returning the Prophet's clan to power, which most people assumed meant the descendants of the Prophet's cousin, Ali ibn Abi Talib. It had a ready audience in the distant east, where Umayyad power was reviled and the Hashemite narrative prevailed. The Abbasid Da'wah is the last piece of this tangled puzzle, but given its secretive ways, we shouldn't be surprised that we don't have anything solid on its early history. There's a shadowy figure who is credited with masterminding all its activities in the East, but we know so little about him that it's tough to endorse any of the contradicting rumors we hear. His name was Abu Muslim al-Khurasani, and while most sources say he was of Khurasan, his birth and upbringing are attributed to all of Iraq, Mesopotamia, Armenia, and the Arab Peninsula. If you wanted to draw together the most common elements about him, he may have been the son of a Khurasani captive raised in one or more of the many locales I just mentioned. How he joined the Da'wah is contested, as is his rise through its ranks, though that's often credited to his shrewdness, devotion, and sheer charisma. There's even a certainly apocryphal story, saying that the Abbasid patriarch himself assigned Abu Muslim to Khurasan after meeting him briefly this one time and recognizing his talent. But all this talk of Abu Muslim is a little premature. Let's get back to the mess we already had on our hands and wait for him to barge into our story. It's 745, and the news that Marwan II had deposed the sons of Al-Walid and was named Caliph had just reached the provincial capital of Maru, Nasr's seat of governance. He dutifully took pledges of support for Marwan, 
though sources disagree whether the new caliph confirmed the governor or tried and failed to replace him. Pledging to this fickle government in distant Damascus wasn't exactly an attractive proposition in Maru, and Hadith quickly denounced Marwan and the wicked Umayyads, and his populist rhetoric garnered him over 3,000 new supporters. Buoyed by this influx of angry men, he decided to try and take on Masr in the capital, but was defeated by the capable governor. The next year, in 746, Marwan was busy tapping out rebellions in Syria, and the Karajite Dahak had taken over all of Iraq, effectively isolating Khurasan from the rest of the caliphate. Al-Kirmani reached out to Harith, and the two formed an alliance to kick Nasr out of Maru. Nasr either faced them and lost, or withdrew before they had the chance to trap him, but either way his two enemies took over his palace. It wasn't long before they had a falling out. Most sources say that Al-Kirmani had been playing Harith all along, and had only allied with him after his defeat against Nasr had sufficiently weakened him. The intrigue only thickens from here on out. After their father had been crossed by Al-Kirmani, Harith's sons went to Nasr for help, and together they booted Kirmani out of the capital. At this point, however, Nasr was more worried about the growing power of the Abbasid Da'wah under its newly revealed leader, Abu Muslim. He tried to conclude an alliance with Kirmani so the two could jointly fight the Abbasid threat, but one of Nasr's children murdered Kirmani, some saying after being manipulated into it by Abu Muslim himself. The story spirals out even further after this point. Nasr could not trust Harith's children, and now he had Kirmani's children coming after him as well. These are some of Abu Muslim's most active years, and we find rumors swirling around him every which way. He is concluding peace treaties with local princes, taking on Karajites, extending his influence to Sindh, convincing Kirmani's children to do his bidding. He had fingers in all sorts of pies. Of course, this is all hearsay, but that's most of what we have on Abu Muslim, so we might as well embrace it. Through utter effectiveness, he managed to push Nasr all the way out to Rai by 748, where he passed away later that year, at the ripe old age of 83. With his death, Abu Muslim was left unopposed. He had his allies of convenience, the sons of Al-Kirmani, assassinated along with their key loyalists, and began preparing for the next stage of the da'wah, growing from Khurasan to the Caliphate. The first time Abu Muslim comes up in our sources is towards the end of Hisham's reign in 742. Over a handful of narrations between 742 and 748, Abu Muslim vanquished three competing factions and established total control of the Caliphate's east. Far from being just another of the region's many bursts of mutiny, this rebellion will go on to leave a mark on the Ummah and the world. If you thought Abu Muslim's takeover of Khurasan was fast, then just wait till you hear how quickly the Abbasid Da'wah took over the Caliphate. We won't get into that this episode, for now let's keep the focus on the movement's early success. Before we reflect on what we think we know, I want to remind everyone that the version I relate to you is just one of many which can be inferred from what's available. These last few years are especially fraught, but while the contradictory content can be difficult to parse out, it itself is pretty clear evidence of how riven the Ummah was in the East. This ultimate conflict between the capable Nasr ibn Sayyar, the pietistic and pro-Mawali Harith ibn Suraj, and the partisan Qahtani Judai al-Karmani, 
each alienated from the rest by one or more of the Ummah's major social rifts, be it tribal, racial, or ideological. Luckily for Abu Muslim, these three sides were pretty evenly matched in Khurasan, and our sources make it sound like the man was born to play them off against one another. While Nasr, Hadith, and Al-Kirmani each had their own following, one thing that struck me was just how close Nasr grew to the people of the East. Compared to Arab commanders who had come before him, he faced far less resistance when retaking lands in Khurasan, especially in the ever-restive Transoxiana. He could also get away with things no other Umayyad governor could. For example, he faced no censure from the overwhelmingly pro-Hashemite locals when he put down the Hashemite rebellion of Yahya ibn Thayd. Finally, it's clear from the speed with which the da'wah took off after Nasr's death how his mere presence served as a bulwark against its success, which to me is something that could only have come through a strong relationship with the people he governed. Given this unique role he could play to stabilize the Caliphate's east, we should ask why the Umayyads did so little to support Nasr when the going got tough. Well, if you were paying attention last time, you'd know that it was because the Caliph already had his hands full closer to home. And if you were paying attention this time, you might think it's because Nasr had alienated Damascus by doggedly holding on to power. There are accounts which say that Nasr tried to keep the Umayyads at arm's length, and others that cite letters he wrote to the caliph begging for reinforcements. Either way, the Syrians were no longer united enough to have any armies to spare, so that was that. As for Harith and Al-Kirmani, neither really stood a chance of beating Abu Muslim. Al-Kirmani was just a local power in Khurasan. The tribal feud was nowhere near as neatly divided as I make it sound, and there's no way he could have rode it all the way to the top. Even when he started agitating against Nasr, he was citing the memory of the vanquished Muhallabs as a reason to rebel. Hadith is tougher to get a read on. He seems downright crazy in some tellings, like the one where Al-Kirmani convinces him to form an alliance by pledging his allegiance and calling him a caliph. In others, he is sensitive, wise, and religious, and in others still, he is an honorable man being misled by a false preacher named Jahm. Whatever the case may be, he doesn't sound like someone who could have stopped the da'wah. Basar ibn Sayyar led a truly unique life. He witnessed the rise of the Umayyad Caliphate and played an active role in extending its domains in the east. Through a storied military career, he had a front-row seat to the transformations wrought on the region's populations, and he grasped their magnitude and consequences better than most. When given the chance as governor, he put all his hard-won experience to effective use, ruling more successfully than any who had come before him. The social tensions bubbling beneath the surface grew too turbulent, however, and just as they proved too much for him, they soon will to the Umayyads in Syria. As Nasr's power waned, the Abbasid Da'was waxed, and ultimately Khurasan was theirs to inherit. Join me next time as we trace the final snuffing out of Umayyad authority here on the Caliphs, the rise and fall of Arab power.